From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning. I'm Jack Palaznik. Elimination of the sales tax on groceries would cost the city of Bloomington close to $3 million per year in revenue. City Manager Tim Gleason says the city pressed its case with the governor this week. We're hoping if this is going to occur with the grocery tax that LGDF is also uh, looked at uh, possibly restoring older numbers which almost uh, identically would replace that loss to the city. That's state income tax sharing money lawmakers stopped sending the municipalities several years ago. Governor Pritzker says the grocery sales tax affects lower-income people proportionately more than higher-income households. Gleason says Pritzker told Bloomington Normal leaders that if cities and towns feel strongly about it, they have the power to pass a local sales tax on groceries. A third of the water service lines in Bloomington are made of lead or galvanized pipe that might once have been connected to lead fittings. The federal government says those have to go. Cities like Springfield and Decatur are offering the cost share with homeowners. Bloomington Water Director Ed Andrews says the city is going a different direction. The city pays uh, all of it. We have built total replacement into our rate increase instead of trying to compel the homeowner for that portion of the line from the curb stop to the house. Bloomington will spend about $100 million over the next decade to replace about 10,000 water service lines. And Illinois Commerce Commission staff is recommending the regulatory agency reject a proposed carbon capture pipeline in eastern McLean County. Engineer Mark Maple has testified the project by Gibson City-based One Earth Sequestration is not in the public interest and its impact on landowners is not clear. The McLean County Board voted in December to deny a special-use permit to install three carbon capture wells near Saybrook. The county cited One Earth's lack of a safety plan, but said the company could reapply later. Ford County's Emergency Management Agency coordinator also testified the project poses safety risks for those who live and work near the pipeline, including Ford County's only hospital and its largest school district. The Commerce Commission has scheduled hearings on the proposal for late May. I'm Jack Palaznik. Support for WGLT and WGLT.org comes from PNC Financial Services. PNC believes that being part of a community means doing more than business. PNC supports the local arts and cultural events that can enrich lives and the community. PNC, local teams making a difference in central Illinois. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. Just like the United States, Mexico holds a presidential election this year, and Mexico wants to encourage more of its citizens who live in the United States to cast ballots that count south of the border. People can vote for candidates at every level of government. Gustavo Solis, who's the border reporter for KPBS in San Diego, says this contest features two women running for president. So it's actually super interesting. People along the border are pretty excited because there's a likelihood that Mexico gets a first female president before the U.S. does. Okay, so you have a lot at stake on the ballot, and my understanding is Mexico is trying to make it easier for people and more likely that people in the United States would vote. What are they doing and why? About 12 million Mexicans are living in the U.S., and 
they can vote if they wanted to, but historically, very few of them do. Last election cycle, 69,000 voted. 69,000 out of 12 million, barely a drop in the bucket. Yeah. And what the state has been doing to do this is basically just a lot of work on the ground. You know, they've been visiting different consulates all over the country, LA, they came here in San Diego, New York, Washington, Houston, just telling people that they have this available to them. They've been on the radio, they've been on TV, and they've really tried to make it easier than eligible to vote. When you say easier, what are the ways that people can vote if they're living in the United States? Well, they can vote, you know, old school by mail. They can vote in person at one of 23 consulates if they live close enough to them, or they can even vote online now. Okay, so uh, let's try to think about those 12 million people or the percentage of them that might vote, take the opportunity to vote in Mexico's elections this year. What are some of the kinds of things that may be on voters' minds? Well, I think it's important to note that Mexicans living in the U.S. send $60 billion back home to Mexico in remittances every year. You know, this mm. is money that goes to family, friends, relatives. And the conventional wisdom is that they should have a say in how their money is being taxed and spent, right? They clearly care about what happens back in Mexico, at least to their families, because they're sending money. And voting is a way to make sure or at least have a say in how that money is spent and maybe increase the quality of life for their friends and relatives back home. I'm curious, is the law such that someone might be born in Mexico, become a United States citizen and have the right to vote in both presidential elections this year? Yeah, I think, I mean, theoretically it could happen. I, I myself am, am a dual a national. Yeah, I was born in Mexico City, uh, immigrated with my family when I was in elementary school and became a naturalized U.S. citizen when I was in college. Well, you're a journalist, so I'm not going to ask you how you're going to vote, but are you comfortable saying <laughs> if you're going to vote twice then? I actually uh, am a little bit embarrassed to say that I missed the deadline to vote in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> you needed to register by a particular date. Okay, so maybe we've got a reason that 12 million people who are eligible may not all vote in Mexico because they're you're more attached to the United States is what I think you're telling me. Well, that's a big reason. When you're an immigrant, you tend to, I mean, yes, you obviously care about where you come from, especially if you have family. I you know my grandma, aunts and uncles are back in Mexico, but my presence is in the U.S. My life is in the U.S., uh, you have to work, you have a family to take care of, uh, you may not have time to read up on the issues. All of those apply to Mexicans living in the U.S., particularly if they're uh, undocumented, which would be a, a big chunk of them as well. Yeah. Nonetheless, people have the option to vote if they want to, as we are hearing from Gustavo Solis of KPBS in San Diego. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. A planned update to a federal law meant to stop racist lending practices faces a lawsuit. It involves redlining, where lenders systematically denied loans to people in certain communities. From our daily economics program, The Indicator, here's Adrian Ma and Darian Woods. Redlining reinforced the racial wealth gap. And it's one of the big reasons why homeownership rates for white Americans today is about 70 percent, while homeownership rates for black Americans is roughly 40 percent. Now, redlining was eventually outlawed by the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968. But almost a decade later, not much had changed. Discrimination persisted. Banks were still not doing much lending in communities of color. And that's where the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977 comes in. Jesse Van Tal is CEO of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, a group that advocates for equitable housing policy. It says you have this affirmative obligation to invest in things like affordable housing, to invest in job creation, 
to lend to small businesses, to lend to people seeking to buy their first home. And the law says banks have these obligations wherever they take deposits. So basically, wherever they have physical branch locations or ATMs. Every few years, a bank examiner will look at a bank and assess, are low and moderate income people getting loans? Is the bank investing in things like affordable housing? And after all that, the bank gets a rating. A rating of needs improvement basically means that the bank failed. A failing grade could mean the regulators don't allow a bank to expand in the future. Now, Jesse says this is not a bad framework in theory, but there are two big problems with the CRA today. For one thing, there are not a lot of standard metrics to decide, does a bank fail or does it pass? And he says that sort of led to great inflation. And the other problem with the CRA is that for years now, people have been able to bank online, they've been able to deposit checks by phone, and even get loans without ever setting foot in a bank branch. And yet, the CRA still focuses on bank activity around physical locations and ATMs. Both consumer advocates and banks wanted to see regulators modernize their approach to the CRA. And after several years of working on new rules, federal regulators finalized those changes last October. Among those changes, more standardized metrics to assess whether banks are meeting their obligations. Also, new rules that assess banks' lending and community investment activities, regardless of whether it takes place near a branch. So, for example, let's say a bank only has branches in North Carolina, but they also make a lot of loans to people in California. Under the new rules, those California loans would be part of how regulators judge the banks under the CRA. And this is what triggered the lawsuit from the American Bankers Association and other industry groups. Now, the Bank Association declined our request for an interview. But in their lawsuit, they argue that the new rules could actually result in banks making fewer loans. And it could hurt the very people the CRA was meant to help. And the banks are asking the courts to put the new CRA rules on hold until the litigation is resolved. And if the banks get their way on that, it might be years until this anti-redlining rule finally gets an update. Darian Woods, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. This is NPR News. Good morning. This is 89.1 WGLT. Welcome to Friday. I'm Ariel Jones. A legal battle has erupted in India over who gets to say they invented butter chicken. Who invented the butter chicken? It's like saying that who discovered fire. Coming up, a deep dive into the controversy over who created the iconic dish. That's in eight minutes. Support for the leadoff on WGLT and WGLT.org comes from the Central Illinois Regional Airport in Bloomington, connecting business and leisure travelers to the world on American, Delta, Frontier, and Allegiant. Close, convenient, CIRA. Flight schedules and more information at CIRA.com. The city of Bloomington has begun condemnation proceedings on the long, vacant, front and center building downtown. One of the things you need to know to start your day for Friday, March 1st. I'm Ryan Denham, and this is WGLT's The Leadoff. 
Now let's lead off with water. The city of Bloomington and town of Normal will spend about $100 million over the next decade to remove potentially poisonous lead water pipes leading to people's homes, almost all of that in Bloomington. WGLT's Charlie Schlenker reports on the legacy problem from a time before the 1950s when lead was considered a desirable metal. The Environmental Protection Agency has required all communities to inventory their lead lines by mid-April. The inventories show Normal has about 100 known or suspected lead or galvanized water service lines. Bloomington has more than 10,000. It'll cost Bloomington $100 million to remove the lines. Normal Water Director John Burkhart says it will still cost the town $1 million. It's a really challenging scenario with a lot of utilities. Communities traditionally ask homeowners to pay for the portion of the water service line replacement on their properties. The city pays for the distance between the main and the property line. Is it mandated the homeowner has to pay? The EPA mandates that the water utility gets it replaced. They don't care how it's done. Decatur has a program to reimburse homeowners a certain dollar amount for the cost. Springfield has something similar. Normal has offered a zero-interest loan and had precisely one property owner take them up on it. Bloomington is going a different route, according to City Water Director Ed Andrews. The city pays uh, all of it. Part of Bloomington's water and sewer rate increase last November will pay for the lead line removal. Normal will use leftover funds from other projects that came in under bid. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Here's some other stories we're following in the WGLT newsroom. State Farm says it recorded a net loss of $6.3 billion in 2023. The Bloomington-based insurer says the tough year was driven largely by a significant increase in homeowner catastrophe claims. Illinois Commerce Commission staff is recommending the regulatory agency reject a proposed carbon capture pipeline in eastern McLean County. A Cook County judge has granted a request from Donald Trump, allowing him to remain on Illinois' primary ballot until a higher state or federal court decides his eligibility to run for president. You can find more on these stories at WGLT.org. The city of Bloomington has filed for condemnation of the front and center building in downtown. The former Montgomery Ward's department store building has been deteriorating for decades, and several city attempts to encourage or provoke redevelopment in the past have failed. In this interview with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker, city manager Tim Gleason talks about what led the city to take this step and what happens next. Property owner has rights, and uh, we've seen that with many other properties uh, throughout the uh, city. Uh, We try to work, try to gain compliance, and uh, we know that this will likely be uh, something that plays out several months property owner uh, can object. Uh, This could end up in court and it could turn into a years-long process, but this is a highly visible property in our downtown and uh, we've been trying to address uh, the state of disrepair and the lack of occupancy uh, since, you know, I I started here six years ago and know it was even before then. A long time before. What all has the city done before it felt that it was pushed to this point? A lot of back and forth communication, Charlie, uh, with the uh, property owner. And really, it's not just on uh, the compliance issues. It really is related to economic development, where we try to uh, come alongside on this property, many others, uh, to uh, try to assist as best we can, uh, you know, respecting that this is privately owned, but trying to uh, move this and turn this into a property that, uh, you know, is uh, occupied and uh, better used to the city and the owners, hopefully. Will condemnation force them to tear it down? 
All the above is possible. It's, you know, not uncommon in communities, especially when we're talking about old schools, old churches, where uh, you go through a process and are in a state of disrepair. It goes to a point to where uh, the property is turned over to the city, and then the cities are left with uh, the demo uh, that's required, and uh, hoping that's not the case here, but that's a very real possibility. When was the last time the city acted this decisively on a property that was non-performing or was deteriorating? I would say the uh, C2 East building is probably the most recent. And there's others, uh, but when I'm talking about prominent buildings that the community is very aware of, uh, the C2 East building, and uh, in those conversations, uh, truly, we've realized what we want to see, and that's uh, property uh, ownership has changed hands. It's into the hands of uh, someone that can do right by the building, and uh, C2 East is uh, definitely uh, a success story. What do you want there? Really open to many possibilities. You know, that is directly catty corner across the street from uh, the Coliseum. And we know that that is uh, a location that is ripe for opportunity. So what comes, I don't know, but open to uh, the conversation. A boutique hotel or upscale hotel has been a possibility mentioned uh, over the course of the last 20 years. Is that your number one preference or is there something else? I don't know that it's my number one preference. That definitely has been the thing that I have heard of uh, the most uh, the six years that I've been here, Uh, but not exclusively. We know that there's other opportunities there, Uh, but we do also know, and the reason that the city's taking the action that it is now, that it truly is in a state of disrepair. We have those concerns, and we realize that the impacts on our infrastructure uh, and those surrounding buildings, it's not just exclusive to that front and center building. What impacts? Uh, water, sewer, the uh, infrastructure into that building. Uh, you know, it has uh, gotten to a point of uh, uh, disrepair where a clogged sewer system or water lines uh, that aren't being uh, maintained properly do have impacts on uh, the surrounding properties. Like what? Just backups. Uh, Not suggesting that that's happening, uh, but want to make sure that it does not happen. That's Bloomington City Manager Tim Gleason. He spoke with Charlie Schlenker. Before we let you go, today on WGLT, we're kicking off a new series called 21 Women Who Shaped Bloomington Normal, part of Women's History Month. There'll be new episodes every weekday, and you can follow along at WGLT.org slash 21 women. And that's it for today. I'm Ryan Denham. Thanks to our producer, Rosalie Truback. You can subscribe to The Lead Off on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WGLT and WGLT.org comes from Off and Running, helping student-athletes prepare for track and field season with running, jumping, and throwing essentials. Training shoes, spikes, and accessories available with experienced staff to consult. Open daily at 206 South Linden and Normal or at offandrunning.com. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, 
at macfound.org. This it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep with some culinary news. Butter chicken is to India what hamburgers are to America, a household dish that you can find anywhere. In the West, butter chicken is the star of Indian takeout. There are even riffs on it like butter chicken pizza, butter chicken fries, butter chicken pasta. But who gets to say they invented butter chicken? Which came first, the butter or the chicken? Well, there's a fight in the New Delhi High Court over that question. NPR's Dia Hadid is on it. Butter chicken is a smoky, tundra-roasted bird doused in a buttery tomato sauce, mopped up with crusty naan bread. But it's so much more. In India, the words can be a saucy wink. It's the go-to of countless YouTube cooks. Hi guys, welcome to Get Curried. What I bring to your kitchen today is butter chicken. It's shorthand for a culinary hug, and the dish is woven into the story of modern India, created in the partition of South Asia in 1947. Independence came amid a frenzy of communal violence. Millions of Muslims fled to Pakistan, Sikhs and Hindus to India. They included Kunda Lal Jaggi and Kunda Lal Gujral, two men who shared the same first name, the same profession, cooks, and the same hometown, Peshawar, in what became Pakistan. And after the two arrived in New Delhi, they shared a restaurant too, Moti Mahal. They served dishes that were new to locals, like butter chicken. It tasted creamy, melty, and delicious. You break your naan, you break a piece of butter chicken, and then you bite into a piece of that pickled onion, and it was really heaven. That's celebrated chef and actress Madhur Jaffrey. She grew up in Delhi and used to eat at Moti Mahal. It didn't have an Indian taste that I knew. And that's why we loved it, because it was like nothing we'd had before. So they became the most successful restaurant in India that time. Amit Bagga co-owns an Indian butter chicken franchise with Juggi's grandson and is familiar with the Moti Mahal origin story. He says the place was boosted by some serious star power. They had a guest, Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of India. Nehru even invited state guests there. Richard Nixon, Jacqueline Kennedy, top people used to come there. All of them used to try the same food, butter chicken, tandoori chicken. The two original cooks, Gujral and Juggi, sold the restaurant in the 90s. Soon after, the Gujral family created their own butter chicken spin-off franchise. Outside one of their outlets in New Delhi, a sign claims Gujral invented butter chicken. Inside, we're served butter chicken that's as heavy as the red velvet decor, the way many here like it. A few years back, serious competition emerged. Amit Bagga opened a butter chicken franchise with the grandson of Juggi. Outside one of their outlets in New Delhi, a sign proclaims Juggi invented butter chicken. But this only became a fight after Juggi's grandson repeated that claim on a popular TV show last year. And Kundan Lal Juggi, the man who invented butter chicken, he said his grandfather whipped up a sauce of butter and tomato to stretch out a few pieces of tandoori chicken to serve a flurry of guests who came into the restaurant one night. 
A few months later in January, the Goodrals filed a lawsuit that was 2,752 pages long. The next hearing is on May 29. Manish is the grandson of Kundalal Goodral, that other cook. The suit has been filed to protect my family legacy. He says his grandfather, Gajral, concocted the creamy sauce as a way to sell leftover cooked chicken. So he wanted to put it in a gravy sort of a format so that it could be served later. And this is key. He says his grandfather, Gajral, created the dish way before he ever came to India. He says he created butter chicken before partition in a restaurant he used to run in Peshawar now in northwest Pakistan. It was also called Moti Mahal. So I asked a reporter in Peshawar to see if anyone could remember the place. And they did, like Iqbal Arif. Arif says his father told him a man called Kundalal worked in a place called Moti Mahal in Peshawar. He was famous for serving chicken in a buttery sauce. The problem is... Kundalal is the first name of both the cooks. And there's another twist. Both the Kundalals, Gajral and Jaggi, had earlier worked for another man in Peshawar. His name was Mukki Singh. And some of the residents said the man who made butter chicken in Peshawar was called Kundalal Singh. That's a mishmash of all their names. So what's going on here? Pushpesh Pant is an Indian food historian. Who invented the butter chicken? It's like saying that who discovered fire. But I wanted to dig deeper because I used to live in Pakistan and Peshawar is famous for juicy grilled meat, not creamy sauces. And butter chicken isn't even a thing in Pakistan. It is not enjoyed so widely in what is Pakistan today. Nilofa Afridi Kazi documents Pakistani food traditions. She says butter chicken could have been invented in Peshawar before partition when the British had a large garrison there because it lay on the empire's northwest border. Moti Mahal was located in that garrison. So was the place of Mukhi Singh. So butter chicken, that iconic Indian dish, Was it created for British soldiers to play to British tastes? This is Pant, the food critic. It is essentially a non-Indian dish. Satin smooth, butter-laden gravy, boneless chicken. This is the lowest common denominator for a non-Indian palate. But if the dish was created in Peshawar, it didn't leave a trace. Perhaps because of partition, when Hindus and Sikhs emptied out of the city and took their food traditions with them. Maybe even butter chicken. Regardless of where and who created it, what butter chicken became is spectacular. Embraced by the first Indian Prime Minister as a culinary talisman of his new country, one of India's most famous dishes abroad, maybe it's worth fighting to own that legacy, even if it is ultimately unknowable. Dear Hadid, NPR News, New Delhi. It's morning at Chicken from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Clouds with a slight chance for a rain-snow mix and highs in the 40s today. Sunshine, though, for the rest of the weekend. This is 89.1 WGLT. I'm Ariel Jones. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from Blooming to Normal, and your favorite podcasts, you can relax without shutting off your brain. 
Download today at npr.org slash app. NPR's 1A is next, and it's 9 o'clock. Support for WGLT and WGLT.org comes from Community Players Theater, presenting Young Frankenstein the Musical with performances March 8th through 24th. The stage show adapts the Mel Brooks film, telling the story of Freddy Frankenstein and his sidekick Igor. Tickets and details at communityplayers.org. From the campus of Illinois State University, this is 89.1 WGLT Normal, part of the NPR Network. President Biden's border trip spotlights an issue that might cost him the election. Michigan voters have drawn attention to another. From WAMU and NPR in Washington, this is 1A. Hi, I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and it's the Friday News Roundup. Joe Biden and his likely presidential rival battle it out at the border. Both say immigration is a problem that needs fixing, but how? We'll look at the stark differences. A history-making senator gets ready to write a new chapter. What mark has Mitch McConnell left on our politics and on the Supreme Court? And Michigan sends a message. Could its primary shape U.S. foreign policy between now and November? Our guests are standing by, and you're welcome to join in. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Health authorities in Gaza say more than 100 Palestinians were killed yesterday in a mass casualty incident. People seeking food rushed trucks with relief aid. Gaza officials say Israeli troops fired into the crowd. Israelis say the troops fired to defend themselves. NPR's Jane Araf says images show a chaotic scene. You can see from satellite images released or possibly drone images released by the Israeli military, people completely overwhelming trucks. There's so little food reaching Gaza. It just speaks to the desperation of people who have no other way of reaching their children, of feeding their children. It's also worth noting that the Israeli military said the trucks were operated by private contractors as part of an aid operation that it has been over. Overseeing. NPR's Jane Araf reporting. Former President Donald Trump is expected to be in a Florida courtroom today where he faces criminal charges of withholding and concealing classified and top-secret documents. NPR's Greg Allen reports the federal judge hearing the case will decide whether it will begin in May, as currently scheduled. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, has pushed back previous deadlines and is considering scheduling a hearing to allow Trump's lawyers to argue that the prosecution by special counsel Jack Smith is politically motivated. The lawyers also are seeking to have the case dismissed because of presidential immunity, a claim now scheduled for arguments in the Supreme Court. The special counsel wants Judge Cannon to dismiss those claims and a motion by Trump to disclose the names of potential witnesses before they testify. Prosecutors say disclosing the names would subject them to potential threats, intimidation, and harassment. With all this, legal experts say there's a good chance the trial will be postponed. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Officials in Texas say the enormous wildfire in the state's panhandle has not grown in the past 24 hours. It's still the biggest fire in Texas's recorded history, burning nearly 1,700 square miles. It has killed two people. Stocks open mixed this morning after hitting record highs on Thursday. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped about 110 points in early trading. 
Both the S&P 500 index and the Nasdaq closed at all-time highs on Thursday, fueled by investors' excitement over artificial intelligence. That same excitement's boosting demand for Dell computer servers. Dell stock opened higher this morning after the company reported better-than-expected sales and profits. Stock in New York Community Bank Corp. fell after the bank ousted its longtime CEO and said it's delaying its annual report. New York Community Bank absorbed the assets of Signature Bank last year after that lender failed. As the weather warms up, Americans are driving more and the price of gasoline is climbing. AAA reports the average price of regular gas is now $3.33 a gallon, up 18 cents from a month ago and just three cents less than this time last year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. Thousands of people turned out in Moscow today for the funeral of late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He's now been buried. Scores of Russian security officers were deployed at the church where his funeral was held and at the cemetery. The Biden administration blames Russian President Vladimir Putin for Navalny's death, and the White House has imposed new sanctions on more than 500 targets linked to his death and the war in Ukraine. The Environmental Protection Agency will delay strict new emission limits on existing natural gas-fired power plants. NPR's Jeff Brady explains the agency still plans to put new limits on existing coal plants and new gas ones. A key part of the Biden administration's climate plans is to limit the amount of greenhouse gases emitted from fossil fuel power plants. Last year, the EPA proposed rules that would require coal plant owners to capture 90 percent of the carbon dioxide from their smokestacks. The agency also proposed limits on existing gas power plants, but now says it will delay that work probably until after the November election. The energy industry has warned rules that are too strict could lead to power disruptions. Environmental groups called the change disappointing, said the country can't meet its climate goals without stricter emission limits on existing gas power plants. Jeff Brady, NPR News. There are blizzard warnings posted today for parts of eastern California and for eastern Nevada. Feet of snow are predicted for California through the weekend. Forecasters say wind gusts in Nevada could come close to hurricane strength. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. Scientists have just wrapped a detailed study of a crucial glacier in West Antarctica which holds back a giant sheet of ice, and they say they have a clearer picture of future sea level rise. I think we have uh, been able to get a better forecast for uh, what's likely to come out of Antarctica over the next uh, century or so. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today at 3 on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. This is 1A. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and it's the Friday News Roundup. And we have so many questions. What is the big takeaway from this week's split-screen moment at the border? And what does it tell us about the competing visions of power that are stake in the November elections? Also, the longest-serving Senate leader is stepping down. What will be Mitch McConnell's legacy? And once more, Congress kicks government funding down the road. It's deja vu all over again. With us this week, Steve Clement 
Simmons is the founding editor-at-large of Semaphore and host of The Bottom Line at Al Jazeera English. Steve, great to have you here in the studio. Great to be with you. From the Associated Press, White House reporter Sung Min Kim, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me. And Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent for Bloomberg. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks. Glad to be back. We're going to start with an exit. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced Wednesday that he is stepping down from party leadership at the end of the year, though he says he will serve out his Senate term through 2026. McConnell is the longest serving Senate leader in history, and he knows what it takes to stay in power. But he didn't shy away from offering a hint of why he may be leaving now, given the current direction in his party. Believe me. I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. McConnell went on to reference the importance of America's global leadership, hinting at his support for Ukraine aid, which is not a popular position among Republicans in Congress or with the presumed GOP nominee Donald Trump. And he warned that we might be slipping away from the values that underpinned Ronald Reagan's famous vision of America as a shining city on a hill, a beacon of democracy for the rest of the world. So, Steve, what could McConnell's departure from leadership mean for the GOP? It has staggering implications because, on one hand, Mitch McConnell within the GOP caucus is also not popular with some for recognizing Joe Biden's win in the last election. Uh, Also, uh, calling Donald Trump morally responsible for what happened on January 6th. I do want to remind voters that he is the person that, when Barack Obama was president, kept the Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland from ever getting hearing, because a lot of people are throwing laurels out uh, on behalf of, of Mitch McConnell. But he's been one of the people to manipulate and really change, you know, dyed in the wool rules uh, and norms of the way this government worked. And he began opening the doors to a lot of changes, which I think President Trump has taken much further in the eyes of, of many. But what you have now is what McConnell says he knows which party is, is Donald Trump's party. And so when you look at that, if you were to replay the, the certification process in your mind about what that would look like today or in the next uh, Senate, it may play out very differently where you actually have uh, suspension of normal rules in order of how you get transfer of power uh, in in this government, how you look at certain uh, issues like Ukraine aid or America's position in the world. And what we may be seeing is you know, an ongoing incremental move towards a real inflection point about America's place in the world. I don't know if he will succeed, but he is making the punctuation point of his departure, the national security supplemental that has in it support for Ukraine, also uh, Israel and the Israel-Gaza crisis, but also Taiwan. But he's making this moment the thing that he's bartering and negotiating over. Well, you make the point that it might be unsustainable for him to stay in leadership with Donald Trump at the helm of the party, given that he did not um, certify um, last time, or he certified Joe Biden's election rather than certifying Donald Trump's version of events. Sungmin, who might replace McConnell at the top of his party in the Senate? So there's a high likelihood that the person who would replace Mitch McConnell as the Republican leader, that his first name is John. <laughs> we, there's been a joke for a while, but now that 
now that's in full uh, in full display with McConnell's announcement earlier this week. There have been three Republican senators, um, you know, John Barrasso of Wyoming, John Thune of South Dakota, and John Cornyn of Texas, who had all been kind of whispered about as potential successors to McConnell because they've been in leadership or are currently in leadership or have various uh, constituencies within their conference. Um, so if you talk to senators, if you talk to aides, it's really hard to handicap who has the lead right now. It's These races are hard to handicap anyway because this isn't like other elections. It certainly is not like the speaker's race. Uh, Senate is a much smaller, uh, clubbier atmosphere than the House. This really can come down to just pure personal relationships, what someone may have done for another senator years ago or what they might have done to spite another senator years ago. Um, But of the three, uh, John Cornyn, the uh, Republican from Texas, he is the only one who's officially declared that he's in the running to succeed McConnell. He was the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee two two times, is a prolific fundraiser for the party, was the second ranking Senate Republican until he was term limited out. But uh, John Thune, who's the current second ranking Senate Republican, and John Barrasso, who's the third ranking Senate Republican, will also uh, make decisions to make and probably mm-hmm. will move quickly if they want to uh, gain some momentum that Cornyn's getting right now. Steve, did you want to jump in with well, I something? I want to jump in because Donald Trump is saying no to all three Johns mm-hmm. and to make a you know play for the name Steve. You know, I happen to, to share that name. <laughs> you know, Steve Daines of uh, Montana is, is who uh, Donald Trump is saying that's who he wants uh, to succeed Mitch McConnell. We'll see how that plays out. And I largely agree with what's young men laid out. And John Barrasso has been moving to the right. John Thune and John Corner are both sort of on the fringes of Trump land, somewhat not as supportive of Trump as they see. And Steve Daines has cut a very close relationship with Trump. So Donald Trump has rolled a bowling ball into conventional wisdom and into the three Johns. And we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, yeah, I like that analogy. Jordan, as a Steve, um, you know, indicated to us before, uh, Mitch McConnell is sometimes credited with reshaping the judiciary, including the Supreme Court. Talk to us a bit about the legacy that he leaves our justice system. One thing on both sides of the aisle in Washington everyone will agree on is that Mitch McConnell was very effective at wielding power. Uh, the judiciary is going to be wanting his crowning achievements. Uh, he, as Steve mentioned, uh, blocked Merrick Garland from being considered uh, under the, in the last year of uh, Barack Obama's presidency. Uh, he he got three justices on the bench for Donald Trump, including uh, barreling through uh, Brett Mc, uh, Mc, uh, Kavanaugh through those sexual assault allegations. And so it's interesting to see the uh, some of the Trump-allied Republicans then turning on uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, some, some of his supporters have pointed out that he got a lot done for Donald Trump, and now uh, they're turning on him over Ukraine and other matters. And, and, and on the left, I mean, he's, he's a, a sure a lightning rod for all the things I just mentioned. Also, the Citizens United uh, push that he made earlier in his career to take down limits on campaign uh, finance. It's, that's why you see the, the billions and billions of dollars pouring into elections now through super PACs and other committees. But in recent years, you know, some opinions have softened, especially under Biden's presidency. He helped you know, get 
some uh, things through the finish line for Joe Biden, including a bipartisan gun package, including uh, the CHIPS uh, bill, which is going to inject billions of dollars into domestic semiconductor manufacturing. And he was also seen as the finger on the dam of Trumpism uh, within the Republican Party and really you know, helped uh, shepherd through Ukraine aid, helped keep some of those more isolationist forces in the Republican Party at bay. And, and so that's why you saw you know, President Biden, someone who's been on opposite sides of the debate for Mitch McConnell for decades, you praise him on the way out uh, earlier this week. Well, we'll see whether he is able to do more for Ukraine aid, because that is still hanging in the balance. Elsewhere in Congress, Hunter Biden testified Wednesday before a House GOP committee that is pursuing an impeachment inquiry against his father. Republicans have been trying to prove that the younger Biden's foreign business dealings benefited then-Vice President Joe Biden. Steve, what did we learn about Hunter Biden's closed-door test? Well, we know that he said that President Biden, um, then Vice President Biden or Senator Biden, had nothing to do with any of his uh, businesses uh, when he was a lawyer, you know, when he, and, and, and took it all the way to the period of being an artist, which has also been a controversial part of Hunter Biden's profile of, you know, getting up to half a million dollars for some of the art and people wondering, oh, there must be some sort of uh, untoward relationship there. But he said very strongly that is not the case. I think the more interesting dimension of it is that uh, the, the, the chair of the committee, uh, Chairman Comer, continues to see possibility of bringing that that testimony, or not that particular testimony, because we'll get the readout of eventually, but bringing Hunter Biden into a public forum, was many Democrats of the, in the committee, Eric Swalwell and others, sort of saw this as the nail in the coffin on the Hunter Biden uh, hunt, if they will, you know, to try to link President Biden to nefarious activities and corruption, if you will, uh, in that. So we we see the big piece of, of, of evidence here was that it, a, a, a long-term FBI informant who ended up having, now we know, uh, relations with Russian national intelligence officials brought to uh, the FBI and others nefarious information about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden that we now know not to be true. Uh, And he is arrested uh, and being pursued for other reasons. And that collapse of that, that witness everyone thought would end this process, and it doesn't look like it has ended yet. Mm-hmm. So while while Hunter Biden has made the claim that his father was uninvolved and the Republican star witness is now known to be a li- liar and is now in prison for other, you know, in jail for other reasons, um, Jim Comer just seems to be barreling ahead anyway. So, Sungmin, quickly, what is the likely next step in this Republican-led impeachment inquiry into President Biden? As Steve said, the main so-called whistleblower is actually a liar who's now in prison. The actual next step could certainly be a public hearing in the Oversight Committee with Hunter Biden. That is something that Hunter Biden and his attorneys had called for in recent months. But looking down the road, it's a real question as to whether the impeachment of President Biden himself actually gets to a floor vote. There are dozens of House Republicans who are very concerned about pursuing this, uh, especially with the lack of evidence that uh, House committee leaders have found. So we'll just have to wait and see. All right. That's the AP Sungmin Kim. We're also with Bloomberg's Jordan Fabian and Semaphore's Steve Clemens. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. Coming up, the Friday news quiz and more drama from a courtroom in Georgia and a split screen moment at the U.S. Mexico border. Stay with us. This is 1A.
I'm Peter O'Dowd. Teaching four-year-olds is a joy for Matt Wallace. Taste of the week. Taste of the week. But like many early educators, he struggles to get by on low wages. We need better pay so that I don't have to rely on the government to have a roof over my head. A new program may help next time on Here and Now. Next time for Here and Now is today at noon on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. In the NPR Network, we believe journalism should be completely independent and freely accessible to everyone who wants it. Because when our communities have trustworthy media sources, they thrive. I'm Elsa Chang from NPR News. It takes all of us supporting the public service journalism from WGLT and the NPR Network. Keep local media strong when you donate at WGLT.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. This is NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. This is 1A. Back to the roundup in a moment, but first, our Friday news quiz is your chance to pick up some exclusive 1A swag. Last week's question involved a must-do for any first-time tourist and a labor dispute that left thousands of visitors grounded. We asked you to name the famous landmark. The answer was... The Eiffel Tower. It reopened on Sunday after being closed for nearly a week because of a worker strike. Congratulations to Patricia, who listens to 1A on WBEZ in Chicago. Now here's this week's question. Can you name the movie that's been in the news this week for now being rated PG? It has been a family favorite and a classic for nearly 60 years. Leave us your answer using the 1A Vox Pop app or visit today's show page at the1a.org. We're accepting entries through midnight on Sunday. Good luck. It's back to the Friday News Roundup. We're with Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent for Bloomberg, Sungmin Kim, White House correspondent for the AP, and Steve Clemens of Semaphore. This that we're about to listen to might sound familiar. Today, I'm taking the first procedural step for the Senate to move forward on a legislative vehicle we can use next week to pass a temporary extension to avoid a government shutdown. Mr. President. Over the weekend, congressional leadership reached a bipartisan agreement on a clean extension of government funding until March 1st and March 8th, which will prevent a government shutdown. 
So we have been here before, and it wasn't that long ago. That was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer back in November of last year, and then again in January. Now, on Thursday night, the House of Representatives voted 320 to 99 to approve another short-term deal to fund the government. The Senate went on later Thursday to approve the third continuing resolution in four months. Jordan, funding the government is one of the most basic, perhaps the most important function of Congress. They have one main job to do, so why can't they get a long-term deal done? Well, it's turned into one of the most controversial things in Congress, and that's thanks to uh, far-right Republicans in the uh, House Republican Conference. Uh, They have pressured first Speaker Kevin McCarthy, now Speaker Mike Johnson, to for to include a number of concessions uh, in these spending packages that are, of course, not palatable Democrats uh, who control the Senate and the presidency. Uh, this time around, they're pressing for what are called policy riders in these spending bills on a range of issues from abortion access to immigration to climate policy. Uh, and look, leadership knows that you know, these things aren't going to become law under uh, you know, divided government. And, and so they've resisted them. But the, the threat that Speaker Johnson is facing is the same threat that uh, Kevin McCarthy succumbed to, which is that a small number of these uh, uh, conservative House Republicans can uh, call a vote to vacate the chair, get rid of the Speaker of the House. It only takes three members to do that in the House. And so uh, Mike Johnson has kind of been governing in fear uh, as a result. And so that's why you have the stalemate on government funding that's lasted uh, you know, for, for months now. I, I believe the government's still operating under the same uh, budget that you know, the Democratic trifecta uh, negotiated in 2022 before the midterm elections because of this paralysis. Well, sadly, we will be talking about this on many future shows to come since it is not yet resolved. Let's turn now to the Supreme Court. The justices heard oral arguments on Wednesday about a federal ban on bump stocks, which are attachments that allow semi-automatic rifles to fire at speeds rivaling machine guns. The Trump administration moved to outlaw them in 2017 after a single shooter used bump stocks to fire 1,000 rounds of ammunition in minutes, killing six. 60 people and injuring hundreds more at a Las Vegas music festival. It's the deadliest mass shooting in modern history. Um, Steve, how did these arguments for and against banning bump stocks play out before the court this week? Well, it was really interesting because you saw and heard both liberal and conservative uh, justices on the court trying to understand technically uh, the differences between machine guns and guns that have been amended with these bump stocks and what the rationale is for why when you turn a you know a, a, a you know some other firing mechanism into something that's like a machine gun whether it's a machine gun or not and you heard sympathy on both um, sides of the court essentially with the notion that these were awful weapons but what you also began to hear develop in the court was something interesting is that uh, Neil Gorsuch and others and and Kavanaugh were worried about the hundreds of thousands of Americans who have bought these bump stocks legally uh, and what sort of quagmire they would be in which is a very different kind of you know court rationale which uh, is is rare for those that have kind of watched these decisions you know I, I'm kind of sort of sitting there saying so what you know you figure out how to resolve it but on on their side the two sides is one whether or not that I, I don't think there's any doubt that they don't want to see these weapons necessarily out there or promulgated 
at the same time, there's a concern about what do you do with, with people who've already bought these systems. I should also say that right now that we are missing to some degree the normal cavalcade of responses from the National Rifle Association and others that would like to see this law undone. Mm-hmm. And the chaos at the top of the NRA, uh, the, the, the court uh, findings against, you know, finding Wayne LaPierre and others responsible for, you know, civilly responsible mm-hmm. for some of the corruption malfeasance inside the National Rifle Association has somewhat neutralized the NRA in this moment. So you don't have the surround sound around this. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But that's the, essentially the dimensions of the debate in the court. Well, especially considering that this ban was promulgated during the Trump administration, right. um, you know, you would think that the Supreme Court would also keep that in mind. Are you... You uh, heard you... that in, in mm-hmm. both, from both sides of the justice. You heard Sam Alito say, isn't this a machine gun essentially by other... Other reasons, and you heard that from Justice Alito, who's very conservative, uh, but you heard slightly different takes on this from Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. But when you sort of look at, I don't know how the case will come out uh, eventually, but you heard a concern about not wanting to rob those people who thought they were behaving legally of those rights and 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 creating that. We'll have mm. to see how it goes. Sungmin, on Monday, the Supreme Court tackled laws in Texas and Florida that would force social media companies to carry certain speech on their platforms. Explain to us what this argument was about. Right. So this was a case before the Supreme Court on Monday, just like you said, about these Republican-led laws in Florida and Texas. And those laws are really meant to restrict the power of these big social media content companies to basically halt content that they themselves are, feel that they're objectionable. And obviously, this was a very lively debate. Um, there are several justices who were concerned that these such laws could undermine kind of these free speech issues. But uh, but 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 there were certainly a lot of uh, ideas being discussed. And really at issue, at the core of this issue here, are whether these laws coming from states such as Florida and Texas, which a lot of times have been born of these Republican concerns about alleged bias against conservatives, violate such free speech rights and that and that argument that you know that these you know that that the twitter well i guess it's not twitter anymore it's x but the facebooks and the instagrams and all these big social media companies that have such a you know profound impact on our everyday lives this is how people communicate this is how people get certain news this is how people consume their news um that you know you're hearing more and more republicans you know certainly in washington and in other states say these are biased and against conservatives it's be really becoming a rallying cry so this is a Supreme Court case that looks at that and certainly a fascinating one. Hmm. Well, Jordan, both sides say that this is about freedom of speech and censorship, but is social media more like a newspaper or is it more like a telephone? Because we heard in the arguments that that affects how the justices would rule. That's right. And that's the central question that the high court is trying to resolve here. Uh, are, are these companies like a common carrier where you know, they're required uh, to transmit messages across their airwaves, across their you know social media feeds, or are they like a newspaper that has discretion of what what they can and and cannot publish? And, and so, uh, whether the justices decide that sweeping question now, or they uh, met, have a more limited ruling that would allow uh, this case to continue uh, through the lower courts, we'll have to see. It seemed like some of the justices were uh, more inclined to. Uh, 
sort of enact a more limited ruling and 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 you know sort of let the, let this play out. But there's certainly across the ideological spectrum, there was concern with how these laws would uh, possibly infringe on the First Amendment rights of Americans if uh, you know if they were allowed to stay in place. Hmm. All right. Well, we will be keeping an eye on that um, to watch how the justices rule. So stay tuned. That'll be on our future shows. Now, from cases heard to cases soon to be heard, the justices have set a date to hear arguments about whether President Trump is immune from prosecution for his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Oral arguments are set for April 22nd. Steve, how significant is the Supreme Court's timing here on when a trial might happen and how soon should we expect a decision? from the court. Well, many analysts say that this decision basically probably uh, uh, creates a certainty that Donald Trump will not be held accountable uh, for his actions on January 6th because you now set into place a process at certain times. This is just about the immunity side. This isn't defined. This freezes the current court case uh, and the proceedings against Trump regarding his role on January 6th. And so if you were to find a decision that he is in fact where the, where the court decision is upheld that he is in fact not immune for his actions, then that trial would continue and you would get to something where in the best of circumstances, you'll have a decision that comes out in that court case um, mid-October, right before the election. And in that case, that's if everything goes well uh, for the prosecution.